you all. It's a good reminder every week why we come here to, um, for a minute, pause and maybe even forget about some of the parts of our week that have been hard or difficult. Not forget, but um, focus first and foremost on on worship of God and um, coming and singing together and allowing that to transform us and um, and heal us, really. So if you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with a call to worship taken from Psalm 139, a very popular psalm. Many of you have probably maybe even memorized this when you were younger. Um, it talks about the Lord knowing all things, searching our heart, that there's nowhere we can go, that no, where, nowhere no one can go, where God is not present, where he's not there, and that even the darkest moments, even the darkest places are not dark to the Lord, that he is able to see all things. We can't hide anything from him. And at the end, the psalmist cries out to, for God to search him, to search his heart, to search his thoughts, to see if there's anything in him um, that is grievous, that is against God, and to lead him in the way everlasting. So I'll leave the bold section if you'll follow after me with the non-bold. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and I am acquainted with all my ways. You can go forth a word that's on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inmost parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. If you want to remain standing, turn to hymn number 57. We'll sing a new song this morning. Um, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Um, there's some great lines in here about God being the King of creation, the King of salvation, that He reigns over all things, that He protects us under His wings, you'll see that several times, and that all that is in us should want to adore Him for what He's done. Everything that has life, everything that has breath, Praise the Lord. So let's sing this together. Salvation. 
Heavenly Father, you are the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And like David, our sin and iniquity has made us guilty. We have broken your law, and not only sinned against one another, but ultimately against you. With broken and contrite hearts we pray, forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, cleanse and purify us. Amen. I want to turn to him. 2.24, we'll sing before the throne. Yeah. 
as it's our only hope in life and death. We pray this morning that as we hear the word read, sung, prayed, preached, and seen in the Lord's Supper, that we would be changed this morning, that we would see that all, for all those that look to Christ, that look on Him, would be pardoned. And help us to do that this morning with not only our soul, but body, not only in our words and thoughts, but in our deeds and actions. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the confession of faith where we are reminded of either a great creed or a confession that's been passed down throughout the ages. And this one is a very simple one, but yet a very important one. That up until this point, we'll actually get to this in a couple months, this question 18 in the Orthodox Catechism. It had just got done talking about our need for a mediator and how that mediator needs to not only be fully man, right, fully human, fully able to obey God's law perfectly, but also fully and very God. That that's the only way God's law could be kept in our sin is if God was to come down and take on flesh. And so the question is this, who is the mediator who is both very God and very man? Would you read with me the answer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Good morning again. Um, John chapter 3 will be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. If you weren't with us last week, we covered the most popular verse in the scriptures, John 3.16. Um, and just so you guys know, I post all the sermons online as soon as I get home from church. So if you ever miss something or the kids are yelling or maybe mentally you know you're distracted, it, just know that it's right, it's right up after church. So if you ever miss anything, you can go back and listen to that. So we've been going through John chapter 3 with Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus and We've been talking about these great things, the great love of God, the great gift and promise of God in the gospel. And this week we're going to look at God's great plan of redemption. God's great plan of redemption, of salvation. We talked about this a little bit last week. That God did not leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us to our own devices, but he sent his son, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And there's this plan of redemption, that the fact that we need saving, the fact that we need to be saved by God, is evidence that something's wrong, right? That we need saved from something. And so we'll see in our verses today this continuation of this great plan, that God not only gave His Son, but He sent His Son. That He sent His Son in the Incarnation to bring salvation to God's people. But we're also going to deal with a very heavy and weighty topic that will be addressed in these verses, which is why don't some believe? Why don't some believe? That if you remember all the way back at the end of chapter 2, there were some that were believing in Jesus' name. They were believing in his name. They saw the signs that he did, turning water into wine, cleansing the temple. But Jesus, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them. And Nicodemus has sort of been an example of this person that... 
knows true things about God that on the outside looks very good, but on the inside doesn't know the Lord, is not following Him, has not put his faith in Christ. And so Jesus talks about this need to be born again, this need to be washed by the water and the Spirit, and this great gospel call of Nicus to look on the Son like the serpent that was lifted up, to look on the Son of Man and to believe. And yet, people reject this message. People reject this call of mercy, this call of forgiveness. And our, our text today is going to kind of drill down and get to the answer of why. Why is it that some believe and some don't? Why is it that people reject this message of mercy and forgiveness? And really, the even bigger question is, why does anyone believe? So I'll read our passage. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. If you want to follow along with me, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this revelation that you've given us of not only who you are and your plan of salvation and redemption for us, but these great truths and promises that we have in the scripture. And this morning, Lord, many things can distract us, many things can cause us to stumble, many things can cause us to forget these great truths and question many things. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that like scales off of our eyes, that you would help us to see your great glory your great power and your great mercy. And you would convict us where we need convicting and that you would assure us where we need assuring. And that this morning your people would be built up, would be matured and would grow in their faith that we would all together confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is able to save and that he is able to make us new. We need your help this morning. We are unable. No words that I can say, no, no eloquent speech I can give can change anyone. It is only by the power of your Spirit. So help us this morning to trust in you. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. 
So there's a lot of controversies in the world, right? I mean, just in general, we can acknowledge that. There's, <laughs> I've seen some faces. <laughs> there's a lot of controversies, right? Some of them are political, some of them are social, some of them, there's just controversies everywhere. And I sort of missed the old days where the, the biggest controversy in the world was, is the dress blue or gold? Does anybody remember that picture? Is the dress blue or is it gold? That there was this great controversy, there was a picture of a dress, and to some people it looked like it was blue and black, and to other people it looked like it was gold and white, and there was, people would fight about it on the internet, and I sort of missed those days. And all that to say, there's a little bit of a controversy around this passage this morning, and hopefully it's more in the vein of the latter of the examples that I used and not the, the former. That the controversy around these passages is who said these words in verses 16 through 21. So maybe some of you haven't even picked up on this. Does anybody have a red letter Bible on them? Or maybe your Bible app is red letter. So some Bibles that are red letter will have these verses here in red, meaning that Jesus wrote these words. And some will say that it was actually John's commentary on what Jesus had said, right? And so there's a controversy, right? Did Jesus say these words or did John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, say these words? Because in the Greek language, there's no quotation marks. There's no markers to show here's where Jesus stops speaking in verse 15 and here's where he starts, right? There's no quotations. And so the question is, is this a continuation of what Jesus said? Is this a commentary by John. And so there's reasons, people have reasons for both sides, right? In one sense it makes sense, maybe Jesus is just continuing his thought. The people that argue that this is John speaking would say that the way that Jesus speaks to Pharisees throughout John's Gospel is very veiled, you know, it would make sense for him to kind of end at verse 15 and for John later to explain these verses. We even see some similar language in these verses to the prologue, the beginning of John's Gospel in chapter 1, if you remember that, verses 1 through 18, language of light, of the world, of darkness, all these things are very Johannian, is the fancy way of saying John said it. <laughs> I love saying that, Johannian. Um, sorry. But, so there's, there's a controversy, and all, the only reason I say that is not to start some big debate, but to say that it actually, in one sense, doesn't matter. Because there's people out there that will say the red letters in the Bible are more important than the black letters, right? That if Jesus said it, it carries more weight than if the Apostle John said it, or if Peter said it, or Paul said it. And in one sense, right, the, the words of our Savior carry weight right there. They're the words of the incarnate Son of God. So in that sense, they have a different you know, emphasis, but it's interesting, in Luke 24, Jesus says that all of Scripture points to Him. All of Scripture is about Him. So, in one sense, what Jesus is saying, I heard a pastor say this once, in Luke 24, the red letters, Jesus' words, are telling us that all the black letters are just as important. <laughs> that all the letters, red or black, all are precious in His sight. <laughs> right? That it, in one sense, all of God's Word is infallible, it's all God-breathed, that the Holy Spirit inspired all the writings of the Scriptures. And so, I just wanted to start out with that this morning, in case somebody 
you know, ever brought that up, you would know what to say. I personally think it's John. It could very easily be Jesus. I feel like I flip-flop every other week, so. All that to say, um, this is God's Word, and it's important. So, today we're going to look at these verses in depth, verses 16 through 21. And like I said, we'll see this morning God's divine rescue mission. God's divine rescue mission, His plan of redemption, that these great statements, and that's why I think verse 16 is so popular, it really encompasses all that God has, a lot of what God has done in salvation, that God sent His Son, that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And so, we're going to look at God's plan of redemption, this idea of the incarnation, the Son taking on flesh, what's the purpose of it? But not only that, but why people reject this message, and not only reject it, but hate this message. Hate this message of mercy, of grace, and that ultimately the light of Christ and the gospel empowers believers to not only love God, but to serve Him and do works that are pleasing to Him. So we're going to look at three things this morning. The first thing is we'll look at the purpose of the Incarnation. We'll see that in verse 17, 16 and 17, the purpose of the Incarnation. Secondly, we'll look at the root and the folly of unbelief. The root and the folly of unbelief in verses 18 through 20. And then finally, we'll look at the ground and the source of saving faith. The ground and the source of saving faith. So we, first we'll look at the purpose of the Incarnation. So we talked about this a little bit last week in verse 16, and it continues on in verse 17, that God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son. That if we go back to John chapter 1, in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, and the Word took on flesh. That this is God's plan of redemption, that He would send His only Son, to take on flesh, the incarnation, this great mystery of the Christian faith. And that we see in, our, in verse 17 that the purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God is so that the world, both Jew and Gentile, right, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, might be saved. That both Jew and Gentile might be saved. This is the purpose of the incarnation. And the question we have to ask is, saved from what, right? It says in verse 17 that the world might be saved through him. Saved from what? <laughs> saved from what? And we find the answer to this in Matthew chapter 1, in the words of the angel to Mary. What does the angel say? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That this is the reason God sent His Son into the world to save His people from their sins. That this is the divine rescue mission, the great plan of redemption, the incarnation of Christ, the sufferings that He experienced on the earth, and His later glorification. This is God's plan of redemption. That in the fullness of time, God would send forth His Son, born of a woman. That as we read in our catechism this morning, He would be very man, truly man, and very God, truly God. That this was promised in the Old Testament, that all the types and the shadows, the priests and the temple and the sacrifices, all pointed forward to this Christ who was to come. The Messiah has fulfilled all that the Old Testament promised. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And this is the purpose of Christ 
first coming. Redemption. That's what verse 17 says. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. This is the purpose of his first coming, is not to condemn the world, but to save, to redeem, to bring salvation. That he would come, live the perfect life, accomplish salvation for his people, and save sinners from their sins. And we see in this verse, again, God is the one doing this. God is the one sending his son. This is a divine initiative, is what we call it. The divine initiative, that God is the one that initiates, God is the one that sends his son for sinners, and we see the great mercy and grace of God in these verses. And that's also what makes verses 18 through 20 so startling, so jarring, so shocking, that this is the root and the folly of unbelief. Because we saw that, like it says at the first part of verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And this would have been shocking words to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He obeys the law, and he thinks that's how he's made right with God. That if he does enough things, if he ties enough, if he gives enough money, if he follows all the rules and regulations of Moses, that he'll be made right with God. If he knows good things, if he has enough of the parts of the Bible memorized, that's how he's made right. And Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not how you get in to the kingdom of God. That you need to be born again. And that whoever believes is not condemned, right? These are the great truths that we talked about in Romans 1, right? Whoever is in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Jesus will later say in John 5, that whoever believes in me has passed from death to life. And so there's these great words about, if you believe, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you won't be condemned. But then the latter part of verse 18 shows us the folly of unbelief, that whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, that this is the great contrast between those that believe and those that do not believe. For those that believe, there is no condemnation because they're in Christ. But for those that do not, they are condemned already. Some translations say judged already. That this word condemned, if you think about it, um, you know, in my field in architecture, if a building is condemned, you know, if you've ever seen a building be condemned, it means it's destined to it's, it's unhabitable, right? It's destined to be destroyed. Condemned. We also use this word in the courtroom. You know, someone comes before the judge on murder charges or theft or whatever, and the case is put forward, the evidence is shown, witnesses are put forward, and the judge hears all these things, the verdict is rendered, and the, the verdict is condemned. That means sentenced to punishment whether that's jail or um, doing time or uh, parole or whatever all these things are. We use this word a lot, condemned. But John here, or Jesus, whoever you're convinced said these words, the Holy Spirit-inspired words of God say this, that whoever does not believe is condemned already. That for the unbeliever, the one who has not put their faith in Christ, that the judgment, the verdict, is already in. That in the courtroom of, courtroom of God, the just judge, 
who, as we've seen, he sees human hearts. He doesn't. He can't be tricked. He can't be duped. He sees the hearts and intentions of men. That for the unbeliever, the verdict is in, and it's guilty. It's culpable. It's condemned. And that this guilt is real. It's real guilt before a real and holy God. And as one pastor said, just because the guilt is real doesn't mean we always feel the guilt. I don't know if that makes any sense. Just because the guilt is real doesn't mean we feel the guilt. For instance, you could walk up to an unbeliever on the street or a professed atheist that rejects God, hates God, and you ask him or her, do you feel guilty? Do you feel condemned? And they would say, no, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel condemned. You know, I'm living my life. I'm doing what I want. I'm living for myself. What's the big deal? And that's the equivalent of going into a, a checkup with your doctor and your doctor tells you that you have stage four cancer. And you tell him, well, I don't feel like I'm sick. So therefore I'm not. It's the same thing, right? Just because we don't feel our guilt before God doesn't mean that there's not real guilt. And sometimes the world and unbelievers can even feel a type of guilt, a worldly guilt, a temporary guilt, a temporary sorrow over their sin or the things that they know that they do that are wrong, right? But ultimately, this is only because they don't like the consequences of their sin. Maybe they messed up at work, they got caught stealing money, and they might be sad for a period, but it's only because they're sad they got caught. They're not actually sad about disobeying God and breaking His law. We see examples of this in the scriptures like Judas Iscariot, who was the one that betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, that after he betrayed the Lord, after Jesus was crucified, he throws the money back at the Pharisees. He says, I don't want it. And they say, the blood's on your hands. And so he, he feels a type of repentance. He feels a type of guilt for what he did. But it's not, it's not godly guilt. It's worldly guilt. Same thing with Esau. If you remember the great story of Abraham, Isaac. And Isaac had two boys, twins, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger brother. And Esau was supposed to receive the inheritance, the blessing, all the wealth from his father. But he gave it up one day for a bowl of soup. He gave it up for a bowl of soup. He was really hungry and his brother was making soup and he gave it all up for a bowl of soup. And it says later on in the book of Hebrews that Jacob tried to get it back. He tried to cry even to his father, say, please give me the blessing, please give it back. And his father doesn't. That Esau, he's, his God was his belly. <laughs> he gave up his inheritance, these great covenant blessings for a bowl of soup. And so we see that in the scriptures, there's even a type of guilt, a type of worldly temporary sorrow that can even produce tears, but that ultimately is short-lived and it's temporary. And all that to say, whether people feel their guilt and feel their sin before God, doesn't matter. Ultimately, the scriptures tell us that our guilt before God is real, that we are condemned already for those that have not put their faith in Christ. And this is what makes unbelief 
so unbelievable, right? As we just said, God has extended mercy. God has extended grace. He sent his son. He sent this great message. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe and trust in Christ. And yet, people do not believe. People do not trust that the Son came not to condemn, but to save. So why don't people believe? Why don't they come to the light? Why don't they see their guilt and turn to Christ? And we get the answer for that in verse 19. Because men love the darkness. Because men love the darkness. That we read here in verse 19 that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness. That there's this great contrast going on in these words. If you look at verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That this is the love of God that sent the son to die, to take on human flesh, to be the light to the world, so that anyone who believes can be saved. And yet, this contrast of God's love for his people is contrasted with the people's love of darkness. The people's love for darkness. And it's not just a lack of information. It's not just that the people didn't know about the light. Because in verse 19, it says they love the darkness rather than the light. That the problem is not one of information, that the people didn't know enough stuff. The problem is one of affection. Their love is not for God and the light, but it is for darkness. That we read in places like Romans 1 that what can be known about God is plain, right? We look out, we see creation, we see the trees, we see God's ordered universe, and the conclusion is there is a God. He's good. He's given us breath in our lungs. He's given us the sun to keep us warm. He's a good God, and yet people don't serve him. And Romans goes on to say that it can be clearly seen, these attributes about God, so that everyone is without excuse. Everyone's without excuse. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows that he's good. And yet it says that they suppress the truth about God. They push it down. They say, no, that can't be. It's not true. And we talked before, the language in there about suppressing is actively present. It's like holding a ball underwater, like a beach ball. It's active. It's not just a one-time thing. It's constantly trying to suppress the truth about God, who he is, and that he is good. And we see the reason behind this. Why do people love the darkness rather than the light? At the end of verse 19, it says, because their works were evil. That word because there is the reason. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. That this is the nature of evil and wickedness. It doesn't like the light. It loves darkness. Evil likes to go to dark places. That's where it can't be seen. It doesn't want to be found out. It doesn't want to come to the light. It doesn't want to be exposed. Darkness likes darkness. It doesn't want to come to the light. And we read in verse 20 that for everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That the darkness, those that carry out evil and wicked deeds, they don't want to come to the light. <laughs> they don't want to come and have their darkness, their works exposed. And in a lot of ways, this is very simplifying for us. Because we can often ask that question, why don't people come to Christ? Why don't people believe in the gospel? Is it because they don't know enough? Is it because I messed up the words that I said to them? Is it because I didn't bring them enough meals? Or we can come up with all these reasons. But what we're reading here in John is that the reason is because people like their sin. People love their sin. They are responsible for their actions. They're responsible for what they do. And they don't want to give up their sin. And we're like this, if we're honest with ourselves, that we often don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to bring our sin to the light. We don't want to confess our sin. There's this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, people have problems with the gospel and problems with what Jesus did because it interferes with their sin. It interferes with their temptations, their wickedness, their guilt. And so while it simplifies it in one way, right, because people don't come to the light because they love their sin, in another way, this verse is very tricky. It's very tricky because Jesus here is talking to a Pharisee. He's talking to someone who on the outside looked very good, who followed the law of God, who had big parts of the Bible memorized, who outwardly looked very righteous. And to the people of that day, they would have said, that person looks like they're in the light. It looks like they're in the light. And what Jesus is saying, or and John here is saying that it's not about outward appearance, but because even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, that even though Nicodemus believed these great things about Jesus, that he had come from God, that he did all these great signs and miracles, that he still was not changed on the inside. He still was not born again. He was still not washed. If you've ever gone through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records these words of Jesus in Matthew 23. These woes to the Pharisees. That at the end of his ministry, he's been, you know, there's been a lot of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he pronounces these woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. These woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. That they had ignored the weightier matters of the law, that they had tied their spice rack, right? It says in Matthew 23, that you've tied mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That you've strained out a gnat only to swallow a camel. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they appear beautiful but inwardly they are full of dead men's bones. All uncleanliness, all hypocrisy, full of lawlessness, lawlessness, full of greed, full of self-indulgence. That these Pharisees, Nicodemus, had used religion to cover their guilt. They'd used even the scriptures, even the law of God, all these things to cover their hypocrisy. And ultimately, they don't like Jesus' message. 
They don't like this message of repentance, of cleansing, of renewal, of the Spirit of God making them new. Because as we go through John's Gospel, we'll see that the Pharisees end up crucifying their Lord. They don't like his message. They don't like what he's come to do. He's come to convict them and expose their guilt, expose their sin and darkness to the light. And they don't like it. And it ends up with Christ being killed because of this. And as I said, in a way, we're all sort of guilty of this sin, of hypocrisy, of on the outside trying to make ourselves look better than we are, or more put together than we are, or whatever. In a lot of ways, we're guilty of this. I was even telling Nick this week about, you know, this time in my life where I was leading worship, and I was a drummer in this worship band, and every Tuesday night, I'd get up and play the drums, and, you know, people would lift their hands and raise their hands to God and worship Him, and yet, in my heart, I was very proud. I was receiving the praise. I was thinking to myself, ah, it's because of me that they're so doing these things. It's because of what I'm doing that they're, you know, worshiping, and I didn't allow that praise to reflect and go to God. You know, we're all, we're all guilty of doing things like that, of receiving praise that isn't ours, of being proud, of covering over our sin, of trying to push it under the rug. And so that's what makes verse 21 such great news and also so shocking at the same time. Because if this is us, if this is, not the TV show, if this is us, Right in our sin, if we cover our sin, if we're sometimes like the Pharisees, then it should make it all the more amazing that anyone would come to the light. Right? Why do we choose to bring our sin to the light? Why do we come every week to confess our sin? It's because we've been born again. Because the Spirit of God has given us new hearts, that He's enabled us to see our sin, to turn from our sin, to love the light rather than love the darkness, to not hide our sin, but to confess it to God first and foremost, confess it to one another, that this is the work of God, and not only that, but producing these good works in us. And that's what we read in verse 21, that everyone who does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When I first read this, it makes it sound like um, people that do good things are coming to the light and telling everybody that how good they are. <laughs> That's not what verse 21 is saying. It's not saying not coming to the light to show off our good works, but everyone who comes to the light is showing that God has worked in them. That ultimately, some of the older translations will say, to show that their works have been wrought in God, carried out in God, that this is all God's doing. We read in Galatians 3 that God is not only at work in our justification, right, making us righteous before God, but in our sanctification. Paul says to the church in Galatia, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That we need the Spirit not only for justification, but our sanctification before God. That if we can kind of summarize this whole passage here, God sent His Son into the world. This is the purpose of the Incarnation. But people reject the light. They push back on the light because their works are evil. 
And those that come to the light are showing that God has worked in them, God has given them a new heart, and God is continuing to sanctify them and produce these good works in them. So as we, as we sort of try to land this plane, a couple things to look at this morning. These are very heavy words of our Lord, right? I think we can all agree that these are heavy and weighty words, but they're also gracious. And they're heavy because there's this great contrast that John is setting up, that you either love the light and you hate the darkness, or you love the darkness and hate the light. There's not an in-between, there's not a middle road. There's no middle way. It is either love for the light or love for the darkness. And so often we're tempted to put ourselves and read ourselves in this passage as being the good people, right? We put ourselves in the good category. We don't even think about it. And we say things like this to ourselves. I'm not as bad as that person. <laughs> you know, we see somebody mess up, whether it's, you know, in the world, maybe it's a celebrity or a pastor that falls from grace, and we say, I'm not as bad as that person. And so we justify our sin. We say, my sin's not as bad. Or we say things like, well, yeah, I lied, I cheated, I stealed, I gossiped, but it's not as bad as murder. It's not as bad as these other things. We, we minimize our sins so frequently. And sometimes, even when I was reading this verse for the first time, verses 20 and 21, it almost sounds, it makes it sound like they're saying, there's people that do really bad stuff, and there's people that do really good stuff. And that, reading it that way, sort of undermines everything that we've seen in John 3. That Jesus' words to Nicodemus are not, do more good things. His words to Nicodemus are, you have to be born again. That the Spirit has to work in your heart to make you new. That, Jesus will say in other passages, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You have to make the tree good in order to produce good fruit. That Jesus here with Nicodemus doesn't pull any punches. He's not, he's not pulling any of his punches. He is firm with Nicodemus. He's saying, you're not understanding. If you remember verse 9, he says, you're a teacher of the law, and yet you don't understand. That you have a tendency to be self-righteous. There's even a story in the other Gospels where a rich man comes to Jesus. And he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered him, Obey all the commands. And the man says, I have. I've done everything. And Jesus says, Okay, sell everything that you have and follow me. And the man walks away sad. Why? Why did Jesus say that? Is he saying, in order to be made right with me, you need to sell everything? No, he's saying, he's getting to the heart of the matter with the rich young ruler. That the man was rich and he loved his wealth. And even though he thought he obeyed all the commands, he would not give up the thing that was actually most precious to him, his wealth. So Jesus there is in a sense preaching the law to this man. And that's why each week we try to preach the law to ourselves. We, we realize that we have fallen short, that our condition is not as good as we like to make it out to be. But that's why every week we also preach not only the law, but the gospel. 
Not only the law, but the gospel. Not only that we are sinners, but that God is good. <laughs> and that he sent his son to save us from our sins, as it says in 1 Peter, the righteous one for the unrighteous. We're the unrighteous, but God has sent his son, the righteous one. That whoever believes, the one who believes by faith, is not condemned, is united to Christ, and God has extended mercy and grace. That there's no cost. What does it say in Isaiah 55? Come to the waters, all who are thirsty, come and buy without money and without price. That the gospel is God's free grace. There's no price. It's by faith alone, not by works of the law. And yet we see in verse 21 that this faith of God is never alone, as our confession says. This faith is never alone. It's never without change. It's never without good works. That in Philippians 2, verse 12, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those are sobering words, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That the Pharisees never did this. The people that thought they were outwardly religious never did this. They did not question whether they were right before God. They never looked at the sin that they were hiding. They just assumed that because they did these things that it would make them right with God. But Paul says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that if we're living in unrepentant sin, if we're doing something that is wrong and we know it and we're not turning from it, that we shouldn't have assurance that, that God will just cover it. I've heard this so many times. You know, I'm doing this wrong thing, but God's gracious and he'll just forgive me. Right? I can just do whatever I want and God will forgive me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God saves us, yes, of his free grace, but he changes us. He gives us a new heart. He makes us want to obey his law. But the verse doesn't end there. It, it doesn't end with, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It says these words, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That it is ultimately God that works in us. <laughs> That's what we read. Who does good works shows that it's been carried out in God. That it's the Spirit of God in the believer that not only empowers us, but enables us to do good works. And that's what we see as we go throughout the rest of the scriptures. That Christ came, he lived the perfect life, he died the death that we deserve, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and what did he do? He poured out his spirit. He poured out his spirit on his people, giving them new hearts, causing them to want to obey him and follow after him and worship him. And we see in the last book of the Bible that while the first coming of Christ was to not condemn but to save, the second coming of Christ is one of final judgment. That the Son will return. That the Son who came meek and mild in a manger will come again. Revelation 19 says that he comes white, riding on a white horse. His eyes are as flames of fire and a sword is coming out of his mouth. It's this epic picture of Christ coming again in the final judgment. And there's this picture in Revelation 6 of all the people that have not believed that have not believed in Christ, 
And they're calling for the rocks to fall on them. They're saying, who will hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? And who is able to stand? On the last day, who is able to stand? And if we're honest with ourselves, that question can cause us to fear, to have trouble. What if I committed this unforgivable sin? What if I'm not trusting in Christ enough? And luckily, in the book of Revelation, the next chapter gives us the answer for who of those that are able to stand. And it says, those that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Not those that worked hard enough, not those that did all these things, those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So this morning, may we come to the light, may we not hide our sin from God, may we come to the light, and may we see this great plan of redemption that God has given us. That he sent his son, that he's given his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, so that we might be made right and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. So, would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word. And while there are heavy and difficult passages to wrestle with and ones that confront us and show us the ugly side of our sin, that in our sin we don't want to come to the light, that like Adam and Eve, we try to hide from you. We try to run to the darkness. And as we read in our psalm this morning, that we cannot flee from your presence, that you are everywhere, and that even the darkness is as light to you, that everything is before you. And that should make us tremble in one sense, because we know our sin more intimately than anyone. And yet, you've given us a way of salvation, that you've sent your Son to die for our sins, past, present, and future sins, that they all might be wiped away as far as the East is from the West, that on Judgment Day, we would stand before you, not with our own works, but with the work of Christ. And as we come to the table this morning, help us to confess our sin, to be honest about the ways that we have sinned against you, but at the same time, help us to rejoice, knowing that you have sent your Son not to condemn, but to save. And by faith, we might be saved this morning, that we would look on the Son and live. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the table this morning, um, we're reminded that we're not to come if we don't believe in Christ or if we're living in unrepentant sin. That we should take time to think about the ways that we've broken God's law, the ways that we've fallen short, and that we should reflect on the gospel and the truths of the gospel. But if we are believers, if we have put our faith in Christ, if we have professed our faith, been baptized, then this supper is for us. It's a means of grace by which we're changed, by which we feed on Christ, by which we proclaim his death. And we're reminded of these words um, of our Lord, that on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave thanks for it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That as we come, we're going to take the elements, we'll come back to our seats, and we'll partake of them together, right? Signifying our union with one another, that we are believers, that we love the Lord, that we have been saved, that we are repenting of our sin. And not only that we are united, but that we are united to God, that this is, and some people call it communion. That word communion represents union, right? Communion with God, union with Him. That's what we're representing, that by eating the bread and drinking the cup, we're saying, I'm identifying myself with Christ, that I can't stand before God, but He can. He is the one mediator, very God, very man, and He is able to save. So, come this morning as you're able. good news this morning that even though we're sinners, even though we've fallen short, that Christ has done it. He was broken for us. And so we can take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And in the same way we take the cup, the cup of the new covenant, that is better than the old, right? That gives us a new heart, that gives us new desires, that by His blood we're washed, our robes are cleansed, and we can live with Him forever. Amen. If you want to stand now and turn to Him, number 211. We'll sing about God's amazing grace.
Sing with me the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly 
We have this great blessing in the book of Jude. Receive this from the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Grace and peace of our Lord as you go.